This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Season 7, and every week this season, we'll bring you fresh content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations, and our main goal in everything we do, including this podcast, is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we get into today's main content about engaging with the next generation, I want you to know about a related resource called Leaving a Legacy. It's a free ebook at discipleship.org slash ebooks, and it's written by Bobby Harrington with a foreword by Robert Coleman. The special resource describes 10 leadership characteristics from the life of Billy Graham. You should check this out at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Scroll down and find leaving a legacy as you think about today's content from Leadership Network. We're featuring Leadership Network's track from the National Disciple Making Forum called Reaching, Raising, and Retaining the Next Generation. Today's session is called How to Not Lose Your Best Next-Gen Leaders to Culture, featuring Grant Skeldon and Monica Zuniga. What's up, fam? Hey, how y'all doing? Okay, how many of you guys were at the last one, the last breakout? How many of y'all have been to all three, now three? Man, did y'all plan on doing that? No. Are we just good? Oh, that's good. Uh, my man Colin Thurman sit in the same seat every time. Uh, y'all, okay, so uh, just if you don't, for y'all that don't know, we are uh, a group called Initiative Network. We kind of do two things. We, um, we speak, uh, in this situation, we speak a lot to um, older generations or... Um, chronologically superior people to ourselves on how to reach the next generation. Um, it's usually pastors that are trying to reach millennials or Gen Z, um, it's, or it's parents that are trying to raise them, or business leaders that are trying to retain them. Uh, so we do a ton of that. Uh, Sunday mornings, uh, workshops, speak to staff, you guys, we could ever help. Um, we're young, and we're decently cheap. Uh, we don't, we're, I'm single, he's married, he needs... He needs to pay the bills. And so uh, all that to say is like, we really do, honestly, we have a huge heart to uh, create a shift in the church, especially towards discipleship and normalizing discipleship. If you weren't in the first one, um, one of the slogans I have to say is we want to make the commission great again. Um, I came up with that all by myself. And so uh, the second thing, though, that we do is we do a lot of unifying of next gen Christian leaders. And so we try to find high caliber young Christian leaders, especially those that are in culture. And what I mean by that is maybe they're in Hollywood in uh, movies or they're in professional athletes or they are uh, authors at a very young age or they're even worship leaders or whatever, run a nonprofit. And they're in their 20s or 30s and they're just doing an incredible job um, for that age. And we try to create a network of young Christians that are connected, even despite their ethnic background or their um, generation or especially their occupation. Because we feel like the future of the church uh, will need to leverage those that are outside of just vocational ministry to share the gospel. And there's a lot of young people that are in the culture that are influencing the culture. And so we think, what if we could influence the most influential Christians in the nation to work together to create new role models for what it looks like? So just be a leader. And so with that being said, I'm going to have uh, Luke uh, share first. Um, this breakout, I believe, is titled something around like how to not lose your next-gen leaders. And so uh, we, I think, came up with a list of a couple things you could do to lose them. And I'm sure we'll give some feedback on what you could do to keep them as well. What's the name of your organization? That's a good question. It's called Initiative <laughs> Network. Initiative Network. We're, 
Based out of Dallas, he's in Atlanta. Um, and we are, if you are in these cities, we are highly focused, especially on Dallas, Atlanta, Nashville, New York, and L.A. Um, specifically. Apparently, there is a video to play, though, yes. as well. Yeah. I have not seen this video. Yeah. Um, <laughs> full disclosure, so anything I say about it, I uh, have not seen this. Isn't this a great way to start about a conversation about the church? Isn't this fantastic? It's just great. This is why we're here. <laughs> um, that's horrific and unfortunately fits in with a lot of what we have to say uh, in this session. But um, kind of kind of sticking with the sports theme here. I, I don't know how, how many of you are sports people in here, like love sports, watch sports, or anything like that. Uh, if you are... You will have heard some of these analogies before, but if not, they're going to make sense regardless, so it's not a big deal. But in football, or really in any sport, there are two different ways that you can approach playing the game. The first way that you can approach it is you can be aggressive and take chances. So, for instance, in football, uh, you might go for it on fourth and short because you trust your offensive line to get a push up front to be able to move the chains and keep the drive going. Uh, If you... Uh, are trying to make a big play, you might trust your quarterback and your receiver to throw the ball downfield because you're like, I know these guys are going to give it their best effort, and I trust that they're going to make a play when we need one. You'll blitz because you have the right personnel and you fit the right schemes. You'll do all these different things that pretty much any winning team will do because you're playing to win. And some of us are going, is there any other way to play the game? And, And there is, and it's a vastly more conservative way. There are some teams that will go into a game that don't believe that they have enough trust in whoever is on their team that are actually capable of playing the game. And so they'll never go for it on fourth down. They always punt. They don't trust their line to get a push up front. They never throw the ball downfield because they don't trust their uh, the people on their team to be able to make those kinds of plays. They never blitz because they think they're going to end up getting absolutely destroyed, make the wrong calls. And so it just never happens. And these kinds of teams are not playing so much to win the game as they're playing not to lose. And a lot of what I see with churches and organizations as it pertains to their next generation of leaders is that they have one of these two approaches to the game. And the churches and organizations that are struggling with their best next generation leaders, the issue they're having is they're not trusting their next generation of leaders with opportunities to own for themselves that they can then go out and play the game in a meaningful way that's going to impact their organization. So if their best next generation leader fails, uh, nobody really notices. And if they succeed, well, nobody really notices that either. But those that are crushing it with their best next generation leaders, they're completely on the other end of things. They're giving the next generation leaders valuable opportunities to own for themselves, knowing full well that if they don't capitalize on them, it's kind of their problem. But that gives their best next generation leaders this feeling like, hey, I'm not only like on the team, I'm trusted to make a valuable play that's going to help us win, in this case, for the kingdom. And here's the, here's the reality, though. Uh, I, I know a lot of us, like when we say this, even though we know this, it sounds like a risk organizationally and relationally. And I'm not here to deny that. Uh, it is a risk organizationally and relationally to give some of your best next generation leaders that kind of opportunity to own for themselves. But I'm also here to say that the risk is worth the reward. To let them have a seat at the table, to let them make a decision that, or at least have a vote 
in the decision, to allow them to organize the set list or the flow of the morning. And I know for you preachers, this is like a, a terrifying one, but even to allow them to preach when you need a break sometimes, because I can tell you this, giving your best next generation leaders valuable opportunities to own will give you invaluable relational equity in the next generation, and it will pay out in generational dividends. Uh, but here, here's the thing, and this works out actually like perfectly with what we just watched. I know after doing this with them a little bit that sometimes, I'm not saying this is you guys, but I know sometimes we can come to these kinds of breakouts and it's like, it sounds like there's some millennial up here saying to chronologically superior people, hey, the best way to reach the next generation is to give us the baton and you go somewhere over there. And like, that'd be like the best way to reach them. And that's not what I'm saying at all. So I want to be upfront with that. That's not the point of this at all. Sticking with kind of that football theme, like anytime a coach like gets into coaching, they, they at some point played the game. Like they never truly retire from the game. They might be done playing, but they step into coaching. Almost every great coach at the professional and college level was a player at some point. Like Nick Saban, he did not just all of a sudden, he didn't hop off a retail rack and start coaching national title teams. Like he played at one point. And unfortunately for this, um, really, I need a 12-step program for being a Tennessee Volunteers fan. Um, it's just brutal. Um, unfortunately for us, uh, you know, Nick Saban, he got his start at Kent State way back in the day before he actually started coaching one of the greatest dynasties in sports history. And so great players, though. They want to play for great coaches. He attracts the best next generation of talent because, and that's heavy emphasis on your best because the reality is some millennials are difficult. Some of the next generation leaders are difficult, but your best next generation leaders are going to be attracted to playing for the best coaches. Like, like there's a reason why Duke and North Carolina are always good at basketball. There's a reason why Alabama and Ohio State are always good at football. And people are always going to say, well, they recruit the best. And I feel like sometimes we focus too much on recruiting when it's like, no, they have the best coaches. They're the one, they're the ones that definitely want to go. They're like, I see that guy discipling that guy. I see, I'm seeing great work out of this discipleship like machine. I want to go play for that team. I want to be at that church. And, and that's why I tell you that like your best next generation leaders, they not only need your coaching, like they want it. They, they really do want it. Uh, I think one of the best examples of coaching next generation leaders is in Goodwill Hunting. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have seen Goodwill Hunting. If you haven't, uh, I'm sad for you, number one. Uh, but then number two is, I want to explain it briefly so it makes a little sense, but uh, in the movie, Will Hunting is an orphan from the wrong side of the tracks in Boston, but he's an incredibly gifted young genius, like so talented, crazy, and he's working as a janitor at MIT. And one of the professors at MIT takes interest in him because he's able to complete an equation that no student or professor has been able to do. But because of some issues in his past, he's required to see a counselor, uh, Sean McGuire, which is Robin Williams, who's getting a lot of love across our sessions, apparently. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the movie, Mr. McGuire, he recognizes that Will is incredibly gifted and talented, that he's a genius. But after a meeting, a therapy session goes horrible. He also recognizes this guy's really young and arrogant, which I know you guys have never struggled with young, arrogant, talented, next generation leaders. I know they're all like 
completely humble and just ready to receive what you have for him. But just in case you haven't, that's what he's going through here. He's dealing with someone that's like, I recognize you're gifted, but you've got some issues. And I, I want to quote something he says, and it's like, it's a chunk. It's not the whole thing because I was like, I can't do that. But it's so amazing. After a horrible therapy session, this is what Mr. McGuire says to Will. He says, Will, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like inside the Sistine Chapel because you've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about war, you'd probably quote me Shakespeare, right? But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap as he's looking at you gasping for his last breath, hoping that you're going to help him. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with her eyes. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved someone more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And this sounds like it's all very, very harsh. And then he says this, but you're a genius, Will. Nobody denies that. And I'm fascinated. I'm in. It's your move, chief. And the one sentence translation of that whole scene to me could easily be, you're extremely gifted and I believe in you, next generation leader, but you don't know what you don't know in some areas of your life and you need my coaching and I'm willing to give it to you if you're willing to receive that. So I want to make sure that we know that coaching is also collaborating on some degree. Like people go to play for Nick Saban knowing this is not going to be fun sometimes. (laughs) Anybody, all the people that know that Nick Saban know what I'm talking about, even Tennessee. I don't know if you guys saw this, just for the sake of like all the Tennessee fans that are struggling with me. Jeremy Pruitt pulls on one on Jared Garantano's face mask the other week, just tugs on his face mask. And a bunch of people are like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. But as the starting quarterback for the team, Jared Garantano comes out and is like, yo, I, like I need that. Made a horrible play. And that's what the next generation needs and wants from you guys and Mr. McGuire and everything that he's saying, he's constructive in his criticism. He's compassionate about Will's circumstances, but at the same time, he lets him know that he cares enough about him to stick with him because he believes in him. And that's what your best next generation leaders need from you guys. Allow them to own something that matters, to let their voice be heard, to let them have that seat at the table, to have a say in how the service runs and to watch you prepare a message so that they can then go and speak for themselves. You'd be amazed at how many kids, Monica alluded to it, how many people want to preach and they have no clue what goes into it. A lot of people fall away from the idea of preaching once they see how you prepare for your message, but they want to learn. And maybe they'll find out what they want to do as a result of not wanting to do that. But here's the one thing I want to be sure of. We don't want you guys to get out of the way. We want you to coach us in the right way. And so to teach them Throughout this process is like when you say like, hey, you can have a seat at the table, like instead of just being like, why does this kid have a seat at the table? It's like coach them in why they should cast a vote the way they cast a vote. What are you looking for? This is why this volunteer is a good fit here. And this is why I wouldn't put that person there. This is what you did great in your message. This is what is keeping seven people from never returning. Like these are the things (laughs) that we need to really be working with them through. The best way to reach your best next generation leaders isn't to give them everything and say good luck. And it's also not to be like, you don't know anything and not help them through it at all. But it's to be there with them through that process of discipleship. Let them succeed and let them fail and be there with them 
through all of those things. Be there with them as they succeed and as they fail. Celebrate them when they win and be there with them when they fall because both are unfortunately inevitable, but we cannot grow without you. And so the one thing I want everybody to hear more than anything else is we need opportunity. We need to be coached, but we need you through both of those things. Thank you. Awesome. Sweet. I want to continue us. Thanks, Luke. Um, he talked about ownership, opportunity, and coaching. Real quick, uh, I want to, I'm going to use this. We don't have a slide for this, so you guys can tag along. But I'm going to go over something that we talk a lot about in our network and just as a community when we're even discipling people ourselves. Um, a girl on our team who's never been in ministry, this is the lingo we use with her when she comes to things and, and belongs in things. So as you were thinking about how do I retain my leaders, how do I get them excited, you may deal with a scenario where this leader is like, I, I want to go where you're going. I want to be in the room with the people that you're with. I want to meet the people that you meet. And in reality, they're not qualified yet. They don't, they're not experienced enough yet. They don't know how to handle themselves. Maybe they'll have a fangirl, fan guy moment. And you, you've, it's your job to coach them so they can be groomed into those spaces. So there are three things that we do as an organization. We tell them, you can come with me, but the first phase is you have a view to at the table. So you can sit and watch at the table and you can be a part of the you can be a part of watching the conversation, but you don't have any sort of voice. You're not allowed to talk. You're allowed to be a fly on the wall and listen. It's like don't spoke unless don't speak unless you're spoken to, essentially. And even when they do speak, you know, we prep them ahead of time to say, just say as little as possible because you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. And you're obviously trying to coach them, but you do want to invite them into these spaces. So you give them a view. After they have a view at this said meeting, event, whatever it is that you're taking them to, you debrief with them. You get to answer their questions. They ask you in the car right there how to, like about X, Y, and Z. You talk to them about it. You give them coaching opportunities, feedback, and that, as, as Luke said. The second phase is you give them a voice. So now they have a voice. <laughs> I have horrible handwriting. I'm working really hard right now at this. Could never be a teacher for that. Um, you give them a voice. So now they get to come to the same kind of same kind of events, same kind of meetings, same experiences, but now they actually get to have a voice and you tell them and coach them, you get to share in the dialogue at the table is when they build the trust at that point for them to do that. They give their opinion. They talk about their perspective. They share an idea, whatever it might be at that, at that phase, they now get to actually participate with the group. And then the last step, of this uh, scenario is vote. So now they get to actually have stake in the game. Their their voice matters enough where they their voice their vote counts at the table. They're not just there to participate. When you when asking like, hey, what do you guys think about this? They get to actually give their opinion. When we're voting on something, they get to be I'm a part of it. This is a really easy system an easy discipleship tool to retain some of your best leaders. If you follow this and you communicate this to them and they know that they're on track to not just be in the room, but they're going to get to talk at some point and then they're going to get to have a vote at some point, they're going to stay with you. But if they stay here in this phase, they're going bye-bye. They're not going to they're not going to stay with you. They're going to go somewhere else where they can have a vote. And the world creates a lot of toxic places for that. So that's just a commercial break. Um, back to our regular programming. Um, the next thing that I, I want to talk about with the next gen and your amazing leaders, we're we're seriously talking about some of the best people that you have that you want to keep on your team and you want to retain them, but also things to help you to know what to do. 
Um, freedom to fail is a big one. Um, I, I remember when I first went to school and I read John Maxwell's book, Failing Forward, it revolutionized my life because I am an achiever and I don't believe in failure. And so I remember being like, what? I can fail? Like, And it's a good thing. But I think the world and especially the church really makes us feel like if we fail and mess up, we're, we are messing up every single flow of the program in our, in this space. And so I can't mess up. And I think if you were to give your leaders, your amazing leaders, the space to fail because you have failed, we all have failed. We've all fallen on our faces and messed up. You give them the space and the freedom for that. And then you coach them and you give them a second chance after they fail they are going to be even more committed to you because they're going to recognize they failed, but they're going to see that you still believe in them and you're going to give them another opportunity to make it right. So one thing that we do a ton of that I I teach a lot of the women that I disciple and mentor is I tell them to use the hypothesis system when we're dreaming about things. Um, Albert Einstein, a guy that we all know, a scientist, I hate science. I I failed. The only class I ever failed was biology. I'm horrible at it, but this stuck with me. If then plus this, equals this, then the hypothesis is true. So in ministry, when you have someone that you're coaching, you give them the freedom to fail. You tell them if they want to do something, they have to build a hypothesis. They say, if I do X, Y, Z plus X, Y, Z, this is the results that I want to get. So you coach them to that and you say, okay, if this plus this is going to equal this result, now you go try it. If it didn't equal the result, when you come back to them, then you say, okay, which of this was the combo that made it fail? And what do we need to redo? What do we need to re- reapply here to help you fail forward and get it next time? You've heard the phrase fail, fail um, often, fail early. You can coach your leaders to fail often and fail early in spaces. Um, at my church, my pastors gave me the mic early on with our youth group and our young adult group. I could fail in front of them. NBD, the youth are barely listening. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I can fall on my face with them any old day. And I have failed. Youth is the hardest group. If there are any youth pastors in here, you guys are the true heroes of the faith because I don't know how y'all do it. Honestly, it is very hard. Um, but I have failed so many times in that space where now I've learned how to succeed. I, I like recently, this is a sidebar, but recently talked to some youth with crew and I came back so happy because they were engaged the whole time. I was like, God is real. I did it. It only took me 30 years to get there, but we managed it. Um, so giving freedom to fail, using something like a hypothesis system, remove their guilt. You really will retain those leaders. Um, second thing is community. This is a big one. And I'm not saying like have a bunch of young adults in community for them. I'm saying um, in, the, in the aspect of does your leader... Um, Look, look like someone where everybody looks at them like they're on staff. If they're a volunteer or a high capacity person, do they seem untouchable? Are, are their friends all people that are you that are older or do they have any friends their own age and their own peers? And so I'm saying, are they well known at your church or does anybody actually know them well? Like, are they someone that everybody knows or does anybody actually know that their heart that's a peer, a peer on peer relationship um, what's crazy is that Grant and I and Luke, what we do with initiative is we have, we found that I think it's like 82% of the people in our network came into our network feeling like they didn't have any friends. And these people have an influence, um, 
huge influence. I don't know if Grant mentioned it, but they speak combined of, of 70 that we just took to Colorado combined. They speak to over 2 million a year and they have a reach of almost 25 million combined. They are unbelievable. Oh, sorry. 125 million, not 25. I butchered that, but they're they're They are the most well-known people on social media in the world millions of YouTube subscribers, and they came saying like 80-something percent of them, I don't feel like anybody knows me to our retreat. So if these are the top leaders in the nation feeling that way, then your top leaders likely feel that way too. So how do you create a space for them to feel like somebody knows me and gets me, is friends with me, I can be real with, I don't have to be on at every level. You as a leader know how that feels. It's even more isolating when you're one of the young leaders in your church and you don't have community. So my suggestion and and feedback for that is if you're racking your head right now thinking, who are some other people? Do they have friends that they can be real with and have community with? Create unity in your church and connect with some of the other church leaders and pastors and say, hey, I want to get are the top three leaders in your church together and I'm going to bring the top three of mine and we just want to have a luncheon and bring everybody together to connect because guess what? They're going to have a lot of the same things that they're dealing with and they're going to have a community the same way you have community with your pastoral staff or other people that are doing what you're doing, the community that you're building at this event with people that are like you naturally they don't have a lot of that opportunity in the day-to-day. And so you want to make sure that they have healthy communities as they're leading out of their singleness, they're leading out of it in a healthy way, not in a dysfunctional way, where then they're puffing themselves up and they don't have anyone that has accountability. Um, And then lastly, think bigger. Um, Think bigger than the singleness message to your group. Think bigger than um, just retaining these people. Think bigger than keeping them entertained. Don't put that leader into a box. Um, when you're dreaming and thinking about how to work with this individual and keep them, don't just look at your creative person that does all of your um, social design and does all of your Instagram and keep them in that box there. If they're a phenomenal leader, you need to sit with them and say, what other areas of the church do you see that we need help to grow in and that you want to use your gift in beyond social media, beyond graphic design. If they're an extremely gifted leader who mobilizes people and has a huge small group, think bigger than just them growing and multiplying themselves. Sit down with them and say, hey, you have such a gift for leading and and bringing people together. What are some gaps that we're missing here that you can help us figure out how to do that in other areas of the church? If they are a great communicator. Think bigger than just putting them on a platform. Sit down with them and say, you have such a gift in this. What are ways that we can support you outside of this to push your gift further? Or are there anybody, is there anyone in the church you want to train and equip beyond this as well? And so um, one thing that I just want to say before I turn it over to Grant, who's going to share a bit of his thoughts as well on, on just some things to do and tips on how to reach the next gen and not lose your leaders, is that we're very passionate about the next generation for many reasons, but I'm personally really passionate about this topic and about you guys practically putting, um, you know, I, w- I, I know, no, no, no other phrase to say, but you know, your money where your mouth is when it comes to really investing in your leaders and creating space for them and allowing them to grow is because I've had personal friends of mine who, um, I'll give one example. She is a phenomenally gifted uh, woman of color leader in Dallas well-known by so many people, was once really involved in the church, but didn't feel like there was a space for her to lead or a position for her at the church she was at. And so she decided to work with Bumble. 
and she works with Bumble full time and does tons of events. So she's creating community all over Dallas for Bumble. If you don't know what Bumble is, it's an online dating app, but the whole premise behind it is women make the first move and women have the power. It's creating and communicating a message that women are, are above men. And so now she's using her gift and her ability to leverage and lead people and convene people all over Dallas and people love her, but she's not using it in the church. She left the church and she's using it to communicate a message that's not biblical. And she's doing that week in, week out. And that's the message she's sharing. And so it breaks my heart. That's one story of many that we could stand up here and tell you of young leaders who have said, you know, there's not growth for me. There's not a place here. They don't see my gift or I have a cap here or they're not, they're not even communicating with me. They're not giving me a voice. They're much less a vote. I'm out. And Bumble creates a space to say, I'm going to pay you $5,000 a month and you get to host fun events and bring people together. So why wouldn't someone do that, even if it doesn't align biblically with the word of God? And so that's one example of why it's so important for us to continue to think strategically, to put these people in front of you, to have a seat at the table with them, to give them a a voice and a vote at the table. But I'm going to turn it over to Grant to wrap up the rest of this session. What's up? Y'all are troopers, man. Three in a row. It's like back to back. All right. Hey, fam. Um, I just quick thing I'll say is uh, I'm just playing. Jesus comes through. I I didn't come through. I didn't come through. Um, Y'all, just to finish it, I'm just going to make two and A's. I'll say uh, one thing I'll add is I'm learning this myself. I recently, uh, I'll say the line and I'll tell you the story, is as the sooner we can care less about credit, the quicker we'll reach everybody. Honestly, um, it's just like, and I know it's like easy for, oh, of course, a millennial saying kind of like what you just said and so I kick them out. It's like, hey, if you don't care about the credit, let us get the credit. Um, then we can start reaching the next generation. I'm not really saying that as much. I'm like, no one gets to no. Once you decided to give your life to Christ, you literally decided to decrease and die to yourself. Like, it's not ever good language. Like, this whole idea of comfortable Christianity that kind of has kept coming up, I just, I always joke is like, the one of the biggest jokes, or I don't, follow me, don't like, don't crucify me on this. Maybe borderline lies in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. I don't know about y'all, but I think, what a joke. The Holy Spirit is the most uncomfortable person in my life right now. Like, like there has never been someone, there's never been someone who's called me to do more uncomfortable things. And him, I live a great life until he shows up and calls me to be uncomfortable. Like, I think the angels in heaven just laugh. Like, how call him a comforter so they want to get to know him. And then, and, and I know the more... You trust him, the more it becomes comfortable in the uncomfortable. Um, but this idea that Christianity gets to be easy or about us, it's just the sooner we die to that, the sooner we're okay with decreasing so he increases. And so recently, um, I late last year, I spoke at the biggest event I've ever got, I got to speak at. It was about fifty to 75,000 people. It was at this huge like Formula One racing place. And... Um, they said, I got 15 minutes to speak. And I'm like, go 15 minutes, I'm going to go in. Like, you prepare a lot and feel like this is a big opportunity to speak in front of this many, all youth and young adults mostly. And um, all that to say, two days before, um, 
I get an email and this is like the biggest event I've ever been invited to. And the event I'm thinking like, dude, this is gonna be insane. And it's in my city. I love my city. And I'm just like, I helped put it on. And two days before I get an email saying, Hey, actually you can't, uh, you're not going to speak. Um, we're going to put you on a panel instead. I'm like, Oh man, a panel is a very different vibe and still going to be only 15 minutes. I'm like, dang, I'm probably going to get like two minutes. Um, it's a very different situation. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm still big, huge opportunity. Again, all of it's mostly probably thinking about me at this point. Um, and then the guy they put on the panel, just one person, luckily, unless at least it's not like six people on a panel is it's one person. And it's this 19 year old kid named, uh, it's like a young dude named Jordan, um, Jordan Whitmer, basically he's a, he's now a friend, but his kid's 19 in just out of high school in high school. He started doing these mobilizing students from all over his high school and other high schools to do global missions and just to do these like almost borderline crusades, um, but a very Gen Z vibe. And so they asked me on the panel, hey, how do we reach the next generation? Why is this important? I'm talking about it. All the same stuff you're hearing today. And then I'm like the young guy at this conference. I, if you didn't hear me joke, I said I'm probably the youngest speaking here by like 15 years. Well, this guy coming after me, 19, I'm 29, by the way. So he's 10 years, about 10 years younger. He's like, and his guy is very different than me. He dresses different. He, <coughs> yeah, he's just not the same person. And he, uh, He's sharing, um, he's like, hey, I know we always talk about millennial, millennial, millennials. And he's like, but guys, I just want to tell you, Gen Z is here now. Like, we cannot miss them. The next generation, like, we can talk about the older generations. And he's pointing to me. I'm like, I'm the older generation. And he's like, but we need to start talking about the next generation and stop just talking about the older millennial generation. Um, like at 29, am I being called the old guy? Like I didn't even get to get to 30 before they're going to start focusing on your generation. Um, and, in in that moment, yeah, you could sparks like, is it about me or is it about Christ moving in reaching all generations? And, and it made me think of, and I'll finish with like the idea of David and Saul is a really good example of, I want to give a lot of props to Saul on something that he never gets props for. Um, is that Saul did, when we talk about ownership and responsibility, like it's, like it's not there anymore. <laughs> it's like, uh, when we talk about that is that dude is probably one of the biggest other than Jesus to give big responsibilities to a young person and, and talk about picking, I don't know the wrong, not the wrong person, but it's like a lot of us don't give big responsibilities to young people. Cause like Luke said, if they fail, it hurts our organization or our, our, our staff or whatever. And so if they do show up or they don't show up, it doesn't impact anything. So they probably won't show up because it doesn't matter. And so what David did, I mean, Saul did, is he gave the biggest opportunity he could probably ever give anybody to David. Like if they lost, they had to go serve the Philistines. And not only that, it's not like, okay, what are your qualifications? Well, bro, I'm actually only here, Saul. Because I'm bringing some bread and cheese for my brothers who actually are in the military. Um, And they actually said, what am I doing here? They don't even think I should be here. Um, And he's like, but I will tell you, if you don't notice me, because I'm not really significant in this world to yours, I do play music for you every now and then. Like, I'm pretty good at that. It's like, he had zero qualifications. And Saul entrusted a huge responsibility. It must have seemed there's something that seems like God's hand is on this kid. Y'all probably have someone, I'm not saying all young people are like that, but someone where it's like, they're a little rough around the edges, like Peter. Um, I might call have to call him Satan every now and then, like Peter, but I'm going to stick with them and hopefully see something come through if God's hand is on them. 
um, and if they're humble enough to submit to that. And so all that to say is then the last thing is he did not make David do it his own way. He's like, here's my armor. He's like, no, I'm not going to use it. Wait, you're about to fight this big dude without armor. And that's a bit other one. We like, okay, I'll give him responsibilities, but they bet they just got to do it our way with a little bit of a young twist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yo, if you're going to just have them look, if seven out of 10 young people are leaving the church, we don't just need a little young twist. We need a transformation on how we do ministry. Like um, we keep thinking we need to tweak it. We need to transform it. And so, and Lord knows if David went up against Goliath hand-to-hand combat, do you think he would have won? Like, it was necessary to bring a new model in a new way. And, and so in the same way, I think we're at that place. And so the part where he, Saul messed up, as you guys already know, is when he started caring about credit. Because at the end of the day, they were on the same team. Like, and to me, the irony is Saul struggled with him. It's not like he didn't get credit. It's like he didn't get enough credit or as much credit. Because he still had people. He entered into his city and had people singing songs to them. I'm going to come home, uh, back to Dallas uh, tomorrow, and I swear I'm still trying to get my girlfriend to sing a song for me when I get back. Like, she won't do it yet. And I'm like, do I have to put a ring on it so she sings when I get back? And I'm just trying to get one girl to do it. Like, he's got this whole city singing songs about sing, slaying the thousands. Like, do y'all get what I'm saying? Is like, it's if we care about the credit. And so here's my point is I heard David Platt say this quote, and I just think it's so applicable, not just to next gen, but just unity in the church in general, is he said, we all want to raise God's name here. There's no one sitting in this room that would be at a conference like this, dedicate the time, that doesn't want to elevate God's name higher and higher in their community, through their church, in their city, and in the next generation even. The thing he said that really messes us up is that we all secretly, as we're raising his name, kind of, even if it's not secretly, just subconsciously, we want our name to raise with God's name And we really don't like it when his name raises and no one notices our name. And the worst place, but I would say the best place, when you can get to this place where you can see somebody else name raising and they're getting credit, and who cares? Like when your name doesn't raise and their name does, is again, when he increases, we decrease. When we can be okay with that. And same thing for me is like I had to make a decision. Do I help this kid who's 19? get further faster or do I just do what I see happen all the time with the older generation, especially in the workplace is they'll be like, well, I had to go through that crap when I was young or I had to do that. I had to pay the dues and I had to, I hated it and all that. And I'm not saying they don't like have to do difficult things and have a season, but it's like, if it's just because that's what you had to do. I had a pastor in North Carolina named Michael Fletcher, incredible leader, come up to me when I share this point about how we're always like, they got to do it because I had to do it. They have to earn their stripes or whatever. He said, any leader that's older that does something like that and has that type of posture towards the next generation, if they have to pay their dues, does not have a parent posture towards the next generation. Because he said, me towards my son, I would never have that. I have the literal opposite posture. I would like, I don't want you to have to go through what I had to go through to get to where I am. I want you to receive what I've done to set you up so you can go further faster. And so I I know you guys know that posture as a parent. I would say apply that posture towards the next generation. And you'll see that generation run through a wall for you. Run through an absolute wall. There are guys that I get nervous around because I'm like, they have done so much for me that they could tell me to do things I hate. And I'm like, absolutely. Just because of 
who you are and what you've done, I will do whatever you want. It's not, um, and the last thing I'll just say is, it's not, the people that have discipled me almost never look like me or act like me. Mm-hmm. They never look like, I've never been discipled by someone that would, people would say, that's probably one of Grant's disciple makers. It's always dudes that totally don't look like me and totally are from different backgrounds than me. And because often we, we disqualify ourselves from discipleship because we think, I don't have enough time, but the second biggest reason is we don't feel qualified or equipped or relevant enough to do it. And I would tell you, they are not looking for you to be relevant. Um, they just want you to be like relationally involved in their life. That's, that's huge. Um, I got to ask Tony Evans, how are your kids so incredible? Like, yeah. is there a better disciple maker yeah. when every single one of your kids aren't just kind of following the Lord? They're like, they are just killing it in different industries. And I thought he'd say the Bible. I mean, the dude can preach a little bit, I feel like. Um, I thought he'd say church, all that. But no, he said the thing that was the biggest thing, to att- uh, the biggest attribute to make my kids who they are today was the table. He said, I was just really intentional with the dinner table. Whenever we ate, no phones. We prayed together. We, we gave to a missionary almost every dinner. Like, we, I empowered them to, like, lead a little sermonette, like, he he used and leveraged the table. If anyone was dating someone, you got to come to the table. I want to meet him. You're hanging out with this new girl I keep hearing about or guy I'm hearing about, your new friend, like bring him to the table. Like everything happened at the table. There's some tension and we know there's some in the family. They knew it was going to come up at the table. Um, it just showed me, wow, for you to be Tony Evans and not to say this, the you're a great Bible teacher. You're a great this. I've, I've heard the same from someone I know that got discipled by Matt Chandler and Lauren Chandler. Literally lived, one of our leaders lived with them. And says, I don't see them as pastors. I see them as just incredible father, husband, mother, wife. Those things that you think that they need or want and or feel unequipped, you might be shocked to see. They actually just want to know how to like do their taxes. <laughs> like or or get a job or like be a good husband or wife because they're coming from very broken homes and they didn't get to learn a lot of the how to cook. You're talking about going to grocery stores, like there are so many things. If you are spiritually a step ahead than some of the young people you know, you're unbelievably qualified to disciple them. And I would say, I see a room that a lot of people are spiritually a step ahead. So don't let the enemy like try to get you in your head to say, you're, once you get here, then you're ready. Because you'll never arrive. And so I'm going to bring up our guys to do some Q&A. Thank you all. Um, great. Uh, yeah, if you can do quick questions, and we'll try to do quick answers. Any questions on, at this point, this is the last uh, one of the, the day. Uh, any questions on anything next-gen related? Great. Yeah. Uh, she asked, how do you, uh, some of this is kind of where you do have to earn your stripes. It's like there's a process. You don't get to go straight to vote. Um, and then this idea of not, it's like how do you live in that tension? Um, and I would say the thing with this is at least it's giving like an expectation of where, how, like how you know when you're going to get there. I want to, I'm going to pull something up, um, but you're communicating out of the process. Even with that uh, discipleship ramp that I showed, yeah. um, I don't know if everyone got to see it and I don't even know if I got it in here, right here, but uh, I'll bring it up. But it's letting them know, okay, where are you at? Even the, what I'd like to pull up is, have you all seen the I do, you help, I do, you watch? Like, Yeah. Knowing that process, whenever I've discipled someone, I always try to assess with them, like somewhat often, where do you think you are? And I've always found that we usually know where we are because it's like, and then I know it's on you to get there. Uh, And yeah, that's what I'd say. 
Yes. I'm wondering um, how big of a struggle it is for women, um, for, for young women like you, um, in the world of just in Christendom with getting opportunities to, uh, is it, is it, like in ministry or in general? Yeah, it's, well, in ministry mostly, in general, if you want to address that. But is it still as big an issue for you than it has been? Um, I think for me, it's not as big of an issue because I'm here right now talking to you guys. Um, but I will say that um, just to give a, a bit of a parallel, which was a little bit we didn't recognize it until we were at our retreats, but we hosted two retreats in Colorado, 33 women, 34 men of the groups um, of the women. I would say 80% were single and, and under 40, most of them over 25 of the men, they were much, they were a younger group and 80% were married and in ministry, while in the women's side, there were like three or four of us, maybe five in ministry. The rest were in different spheres of influence. The men, many of them were in ministry. So I think that when it comes to the ministry space, yes, um, there is still less opportunity. But I think what is encouraging is to see that there are so many other spaces where women do minister, but it's not through the vocational vein of ministry. So whether that's through a podcast they have, through a YouTube channel, through uh, being an online influencer, having partnerships with other organizations, using their voice. We have poets, we have singers, we have actors. Um, There's been so much growth for women. Um, So I think that that space is continuing to grow. And I said this in the last session, talk specifically about women and women in ministry as well and spaces for that. But I think the more that you can be cognizant of that and create space for that, then there's room for that. So Grant is one of those people who's always opened the door for me. Um, He speaks and has a ton of opportunity and recognizes. He has always said, I'm really passionate about women and women having a voice. And so he said, if I'm passionate about it, I have to actually do something about it. So he not not only opens the door for me, but other women as well. So I think practicing that model will help grow that. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to check out the resource we mentioned at the beginning of the episode called Leaving a Legacy, which you can download for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. May God bless you as you make disciples who make disciples, even among those of the next generation.